I'm proud of all of you because in some ways today is kind of like a graduation for us. We're finishing up our study of the book of the Revelation. Most of you know that I go fishing every summer with a a dear friend from college and some new friends that I've made as a result of uh, my friend Dave. Uh, One of my fishing buddies, Tim, sent me an email this week uh, that was called The Last Picture Taken on My iPhone. And uh, I pulled three of the best pictures from what obviously, as you'll see here in a minute, has to be some of America's best and brightest, okay? So here's the first picture. That's a log coming off a logging truck. Uh, Here's the second one. That's not the running of the bulls. It's probably the killing by the bull. And then the third one, I just think this is amazing. Petting a shark. Okay. You know, today's message could be subtitled in some ways, the last picture of the book of the Revelation, because we're going to finish up today. Aren't you glad that ours turns out way better than those three pictures? Because as the series is titled Game Over, the final score is, say it with me, we win. Amen. So this morning, what we're going to do is do Revelation chapter 22 in two segments, because that's how it's written, okay? There's a final look at heaven in the first five verses, and then some final words from the Apostle John and from the Lord Jesus himself. And so we're going to read it that way, and I'm going to teach it that way as well. So if you would stand, please. Uh, Marjorie Marquez is going to be our reader for this morning. So Marjorie, thank you for helping us with this. If you'll stand as we hear together uh, God's word from the Revelation. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. As we uh, work our way through the first part of this. Before we jump in, there are two foundational truths about heaven that I want to make sure we understand. We saw them last week and we'll see them this week. Here is foundational truth number one. Heaven's priority is relationship. You read all through chapter 21 and it just talks about the fact that we are sons and daughters of God, that it's a bride and a bridegroom. And there's all kinds of analogies that show us this is about relationship first and foremost. Then also, number two, heaven is a continuation of God's original plan. We'll see that here in the first five verses of chapter 22, but we touched on that last week. Also, if you weren't here, please get a CD or go online and listen because I explained why it is so very important for us to understand that what's coming is a continuation of the plan that God has had from the beginning. There's a really important reason for that. I'm not going to repeat it for you today, but go online and listen if you missed it. With this issue of uh, heaven being a continuation of God's original plan, one of the commentaries that I used quite frequently in my own study for this calls this section, these first five verses of chapter 22, Eden restored, like the Garden of Eden restored. And that really is what it is. As we work our way through these verses, listen to the similarities and think back to Genesis, the first three chapters. And it's like, wow, he's talking about the same thing because he is. All right. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Some commentators think that this is symbolic language, that it's a picture of death finally, fully, ultimately being abolished and that life reigns supreme. Uh, 
I think it means all that, but I think this is literally a river because we're going back to how it was in the garden on earth in the first place. And there was a river in that garden. I really think it is an actual literal river. Water is the essence of life, right? I mean, you can go a long time without food. You can't go very long without water. Because it's the essence of life. And to me, it's a perfect picture of this river, this essence of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, who are ultimately the givers of life in the first place, right? How out of them comes this pure crystal water that that is a source of life itself from the source of life, ultimately, himself. All right, this river's in the, it's in the middle of heaven's main street. Again, a picture of the, the focus, the centrality of eternal life. And think about this. It's not just life forever from God. It's life forever with God. It's all about that kind of relationship, folks. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Now, you may go, how can it be in two places at one time? I don't understand that. Listen, if this is the first thing so far in this study that you haven't been able to get your mind around and figure out, congratulations to you. <laughs> this whole book is filled with mystery and how, how, could, how could this tree be two places at one time? One simple word, God. God's behind it, okay? And God can do whatever he wants. Is there anything too hard for him? And once we get to heaven or once heaven comes here and and we're there, this whole issue of time and space that we wrestle with here, locked in this time and space in the planet Earth, that's gone. We'll see whole new dimensions of things and and how they work. All right. We're not going to be limited by all that. This tree is the same tree that was in the Garden of Eden that we read about in Genesis. Revelation 2.7 said that this tree was with God in paradise. Well... Now, it's going to take up its, its regained rightful place in the new Jerusalem. Folks, when you think about the second coming, don't just think about that with regards to Jesus. Because in the second coming, not only is Christ coming back, the plan and purpose of God is coming back too. This new heaven, this new earth, this new Jerusalem is going to be part and parcel to Everything that God wants to bring back and reestablish from his original plan, it's coming as well. This tree bears 12 different kinds of fruit. Any of you ever received for Christmas the fruit of the month club thing? Anybody? It's way overpriced, okay? I don't know how much people pay for this, but every month you get, like in January, you get a box of pears, and uh, February you get oranges and apples, and throughout the year you get 12 different fruits. Way overpriced, pretty good, but this is way better. And later in the chapter we'll see this doesn't cost. This is free. It's free for the taking. So it's not overpriced. It's free, and it's ours. This tree, notice, this tree doesn't have seasons, We live now in a a space and time and a place where a tree in the spring comes back to life and blossoms and produces fruit through the summer and we pick it in the fall and then it goes back into this dormancy and this tree's not like that at all. It doesn't have seasons. It doesn't represent a cycle of life like we know now. This tree is always and forever producing and bearing fruit, new life. That is what God's kingdom, God's will, God's plan, his purpose is going to be like. It's going to be like that. Remember, we looked last week at Revelation 21.5 because there's a, there's a key statement that Jesus makes in that verse. Behold, I am making all things new. He didn't say I'm making all new things. He's not going to scrap it all and start all over. He's going to take everything that was a part of God's original intention and creation, tainted by sin, and get all the sin out of the way, purge all the sin, burn it off, whatever you want to call it, and everything from his original plan is going to have that kind of newness and freshness. And I personally believe that this this word new, making all things new, is going to have an ongoing regenerative regenesis to it. In other words, everything is going to be continually, all the time, made new. So that we're going to be in heaven and constantly we're going to go, did you see that? I don't think I've ever seen that before. And you'll poke me and go, that's because it's never happened before. And that's going to be this ongoing forever experience that we have. That's, that's our God. 
just unlimited in his creativity, his power to constantly create and make all things new, fresher and fresher and fresher all the time. Is that going to be a hoot or what? That's how, that's why we're not going to ever get bored in heaven. It's always going to continually be new. Is there a part of you that says, I just can't wait for that day? Is there? So if you didn't raise your hand or you're sitting there going, well, I'm not sure yet. I'm thinking about it. I want to say this to you. Get with the program. You know why I say that? Because the apostle Paul writes something in the book of Romans in the eighth chapter that tells us that this, I just can't wait for that day type of expectancy is something that God put into everything that he has ever created, not just people. There's something in dogs. I'm not sure about cats, but something in dogs and plants and rocks and mountains and everything that has this, I just can't wait for that moment. Look, look at what it says here. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility because of sin. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Because there was a price to pay and consequences for sin. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, that's everything, not just you and me. The whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but Also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Folks, that last little statement there, I think, is just another way to state those two foundational truths about heaven. Our adoption as sons reminds us that heaven is all about relationship. And we await this redemption of our bodies, that heaven is a continuation of God's original plan. Adam and Eve were destined to live forever until they sinned. So there needs to be something in us that says, I can't wait. You don't want to be outdone by a rock, do you? Or a tree or a plant or a dog? No. This is a glorious day. And our spirit needs to say, I can't wait for that day. Okay, put verses one and two back up again. So um, we have this tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. This fruit is not just for decoration. I am firmly convinced that this fruit will be there for us to eat and enjoy, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Does that make anybody else happy? Oh, it does me. It's a part of God's original plan going on, continuing forever. 1 Timothy 6, 17, the second half of that verse says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. This tree, this fruit is to be enjoyed. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5 says, everything created by God is good. Everything means everything. Everything is created by God and it's good. Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Church, you remember back a couple chapters? We are going to the marriage supper of the lamb. That ain't going to be little hors d'oeuvres on a tray. This is going to be a banquet. This is going to be, wow, this food is awesome. Somebody say hallelujah. Am I the only person in the room excited that we're going to get to eat? I know you better than that. I know some of you way better than that, and I won't make eye contact with you right now. See, food is not just some New Testament or some, well, yeah, someday in heaven kind of thing in terms of the heavenly plan. Food has been in God's plan. The enjoyment of food has been in God's plan since the beginning. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8. It's an Old Testament prophetic picture of heaven. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. That sounds like little hors d'oeuvres to you. 
On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's wonderful that he'll wipe away all of our tears and sin won't be remembered. But equally wonderful is this banquet is going to have the choicest of meats. The finest of wines. Can somebody say hallelujah? hallelujah? It's a part of the package. It's it's wonderful. I think of the words of Jesus, even better than the prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verses 15 and 16, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, the Passover, was that just little grape juice, a little bread? Or was it a full meal? It was a full meal. He sat down with the disciples at the, at the Passover meal. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's talking about heaven someday. That there is going to be a banquet of sumptuous food and drink that we will participate in. I'm sorry to be so food focused, but I'm excited about this and you should be too. I like to eat. Many of you like to eat. There's going to be great food in heaven. Yes. All right. So the last part of verses one and two talks about the leaves of the tree were healing of the nations, were for healing of the nations. Folks, that's in the past tense. It was for that. It's no longer going to be necessary because once God shows up, his throne shows up, healing is now complete. So that's a statement about what those leaves were for their original purpose. I think verse number three, as we continue reading, um, just reiterates that point. There will no longer be any curse. You see, if you need healing, then you're sick or something's wrong. And that's a part of the curse. It's not going to be necessary any longer. There will be no longer any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. it. It almost could read, there will no longer be any curse because the throne of God and the throne of the lamb were in it. You see, they are mutually exclusive. When the throne of God, when the kingdom of God, the will of God shows up, all curse is removed. It is gone once and for all and forever. They cannot mutually coexist. And his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Sometimes we think of being bond servants and we have a wrong picture. We think of slavery as we've known it here in the United States or even as we see it around the world. To be a bond servant of God is not to be under his thumb and it's not punitive and it's not you're going to do all those things you've always hated to do because he's God and you're not. The picture of a bond servant is a picture of one who serves his master because his master treats him so well and his master is so wonderful to him and his master's redeemed him from a, a far worse life. When we think of being bond servants, we really need to think of the picture given us in first Peter chapter two, where we're called a, a royal race. We are a, a chosen race, rather a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for God's possession. That's the context in which we serve him. As priests, as fellow kings, not as some subservient little slave. You see, when we get there, there's going to be this amazing combination of, of servanthood and sonship. All mixed together in a glorious way. His name will be on our foreheads, not as some kind of stamp of ownership. But as a sign of this, this we'll be perfectly possessed by our father. Wow. Think about this for a minute. This, this thing comes full cycle, okay? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the day, a perfect, unbroken fellowship relationship with him. Sin enters into the picture, and God says, even to somebody like Moses, who was called his friend, God says this to him, you can't see my face, for no man can see me and live. Moses, because of sin, if you see me, it would kill you. And then by the time Jesus shows up, it gets much better. Jesus coming, the exact representation and image of God in heavenly, excuse me, in human form. Jesus has this little interchange with Philip. Uh, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father. And that's enough for us. 
Jesus said, have I been with you so long yet you've not come to know me, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because there was still this veil there. This thing that still kept mankind at a bit of a distance from God. When this time shows up, we're back to the fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. Look at these words. Next slide. This is eternal life, that they may know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That word know is not know about. It's not intellectual knowledge. It's a word for intimacy. This thing goes full circle. Last verse, number five. There will no longer be any light They will have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. I'm I'm not going to spend any time on that because we did last week in chapter 21 verses 23 through 25. This really is just a a reiteration of that. So Marjorie, if you'd come on back up, we're going to close with verses uh, 6 through 21 and then we're going to do something really special at the end today. So would you stand again, please, as we hear the reading of God's word. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and let the one who is filthy will be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and let the one who is holy keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves the practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So we're going to move rather quickly through this section. When we started back in September, I, I promised you that we would finish before Jesus returned. And I think we're going to make it, okay, unless something happens in the next few minutes. All right. And he said to me, this is the angel who showed him the new Jerusalem back in chapter 21, verse number 9. He said to me, these words are faithful and true. 
And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember, chapter 1, verse 1 started with those very words. A reminder from God that no matter what unfolds in this book and in our world, no matter how crazy and chaotic and awful it seems to appear, from cover to cover of this book, God says to you and me, these things must take place. Another way for God to say, I am sovereign, I am in total control of this chaotic, crazy mess, and I'm good. My plan is good. He's faithful to do what he said he would do. And not only is he true, but the words written are true as well. I love the fact that it talks here about the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. You know what that says to you and me? It says that the revelation is not some standalone book or message that was tacked onto the end of the Bible as an, oh, by the way, this is how it's all going to end. God was with the spirits of the prophets. Folks, from cover to cover, this amazing book that we call the Bible has the same message. The same Holy Spirit that spoke to and gave this vision to the Apostle John gave it to Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and even Moses as he wrote and recorded Genesis. On and on it goes through the book. The revelation isn't some standalone tack-on message. It's the capstone, final word of the same message that's in the book. And he's coming quickly. That's the message. Let me remind you, his quickly, not your quickly. How many of you have any quicklies in your life that you regret a little bit? It's one of those, okay, so it says, bake this bread at 350 degrees for an hour. So I'll just turn it up to 700 and bake it for a half an hour. Is that a bad quickly? You have any of those bad quicklies in your life where you kind of thought you knew better? Let's let his quickly be the quickly, okay? Because it's going to be the right quickly. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, that's either uh, the angel quoting Jesus or it's Jesus speaking himself. I think the context is the angel quoting Jesus. If you got a bulletin when you came in today... There is a bookmark in there that I wanted you to have. Uh, Thanks to Steph Hewitson for making this for us. The seven Beatitudes in the book of the Revelation. Matthew chapter 5 has what we know as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, and, and all those listed there. There are seven different times in the book of the Revelation that says we will be blessed if... So I wanted you to have those. And I would encourage you to put those in your Bible and use this and read through those because... There's strength given in that. Notice the first one. Blessed is the one who reads the words of the prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it. That's, folks, that's why every week we stood and listened to someone read the word of God. There's a blessing even in just reading it and hearing it. But it also says those who take to heart what is written in it. That corresponds to number six, the one we're at right here in verse number seven of chapter 22. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. To heed is to pay attention to something, to take it to heart. And folks, what that means is we need to believe what this book says about us, about who we are, what it says about you as a child of God, as God's servant, as an overcomer. As a winner, believe that and then do what it says. Heed the words, act accordingly. Not trying hard, but act like who you already are as a child of God. Then it it seems as if John almost steps back from the, the vision for a moment. It's like he's in this vision and then he comes back to earth almost as it were for just a minute. I, John... I'm the one who heard and saw these things. I, John, everyone who read this at that moment in time knew who this was talking about. If they were a part of the family of faith. Oh, John, the beloved, the the disciple that Jesus loved. One of the three on the inner circle of the 12 and probably the one that Jesus was most intimate with. 
Who better to have this revelation than him, huh? Wow, that just amazes me. The intimate friend of Jesus. Who better to have the revelation? And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of the brethren and the prophets and those who heed the word of this book. Don't, don't worship me, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. You know, that's not the normal message that prophets received. If you go back and read Isaiah and Daniel, they were told the exact opposite. Seal up the words of this vision because the time is in the future. It's not what John's told. John's told, don't seal it because the time is imminent. This is coming quickly. This is going to happen soon. Don't seal it, not only because it's coming soon, but because you need to heed the words of this book. You need to, to know what it says so you can do what it says. And then there's this, at first glance, this odd interjection. What in the world does this mean? Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who's filthy still be filthy. Let the one who's righteous practice righteousness. And the one who's holy still keep himself holy. Folks, I I want you to know that this is not some fatalistic command or some permission to sin. Okay? That's not what this is. I believe this is a word for then and a word for now and a word right up until the end that is an observation statement, not a command that gives permission to sin. I think that this, this observation that, that the, the angel's making here is, is aimed at the very end. Remember when we talked in Revelation 17 and 18 about Babylon and how... Up until the very last moment, all the warnings, the the seals being broken and the trumpets being sounded, and even those seven bowls of judgment were for the purpose of mercy, ultimately, that God's heart, even in pouring those things out, was, please repent. This is what it's going to be like for you forever unless you repent. So even as judgment came, it was for the purpose of the rebellious, uh, the, the dwellers of the earth to bow their knee to God. At this point in the story, I think it reflects back to chapter 18 and it's too late. And, and what this means is not permission to sin, but an observation about these people. A way as if God is saying, just continue to be who you've already chosen to be. Because it's too late for you. You've had every opportunity to turn and repent. Live out your unredeemed or your redeemed nature. You see, it's talking about those who practice righteousness and those doing wrong, practicing doing wrong. We're not talking here about an occasional struggle with sin or even a falling into sin. It's talking a practice refers to something you are at the core of your being. He's saying, just do what you are bound and determined that you're going to do anyhow. And so it's like a, it's a watershed moment. It's a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous. It's not permission at all to sin. Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. It's a restatement in essence of chapter, of verse number seven, excuse me, of what we already looked at. My reward being in my hand to, to render to every man for what he's done. We looked at that two weeks ago when we looked at the great white throne of judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to say to you again, how you live your life matters. It does. Not for where you'll spend eternity, but for the rewards that you'll receive. And then Jesus reminds us that it's him that's speaking. Alpha, omega, first, last, beginning, and the end. I don't know about you, but when I look at this world and I see how it's getting crazier and crazier every day and more chaotic every day, I need a reminder from Jesus himself that says, I got this under control. I'm coming quickly. Hang on. Do you ever need that? Boy, I need that on such a regular basis. Unbelievable. Um, World Magazine, it's kind of like a Christian Time Magazine, 
When I, when I just read the paper or the news or watch the news, it sometimes makes me want to pull my hair out in terms of what's going on. How could people be like this? World Magazine puts a Christian perspective on it, and that helps somewhat. Um, but the world is it's just getting more nuts every day. Jesus assures us in this moment, he's got it under control, and he's coming quickly. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Like I said, your deeds determine your rewards, not your ultimate destiny. That's been decided or is decided by whether or not you place faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you by shedding his blood on that cross. Those who have washed their robes is a picture of those who have placed their faith in that shed blood and they've, they've dipped their robes. In other words, they've, they've just allowed themselves to be immersed in the sacrifice of his blood because they come out the other side washed, spotless, pure, white, clean, whatever other kind of words you want to use around that. Have you done that? Have you? It's the most important decision you'll ever make in life. We're at a point in this story where we're seeing a demarcation between those who wash their robes, those who have placed their faith in Jesus to save them because they know they can't save themselves, and those who refuse. Have you done that? If you've not done that, today is the day you need to do that. You need to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I don't want you on the outside looking in. I want you in. And so does he. Outside are the dogs, sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, those who love and practice lying. Folks, I want you to understand, outside does not mean they're outside looking in the windows. Wow, look at all that good food. Jeez, I wonder if there's any way I can get in. I wonder, wonder if I'll get a second chance. Hmm, I'm just going to hang around this gate and maybe I can sneak in. Outside here isn't that kind of outside. It's so far outside, you wouldn't believe it. We've already seen in chapter 21, verse 8, judgment's already happened. Those who have not washed their robes, those who are unbelievers, the unredeemed, the unregenerate, whatever you want to call them, they're already in the lake of fire. And that doesn't sit just outside the gate of heaven. It's far removed So outside here, I don't know how many times to say way, 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 but it's that far outside, okay? This verse is all about, these two verses are a contrasting statement between the fates of two very, very different groups. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Remember, um, this book was written for all time. But it had us in mind. The transmission of this book that we looked at back in, verse, in week number one, rather. Let's put up the next slide. The actual transmission of Revelation from verse number one through three. It's from God, and then it's to Jesus, who by his angel gave it to John, who wrote it originally to the seven churches in Asia. But then it also says, and to, and to those to come. That's us. Okay? This book is also written to us. Jesus, again, makes it clear that he and God are the authors of this book. And he describes himself as the root of the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Again, an affirmation that it's him writing these words that must soon take place. And then I love this little section. The spirit and the bride say, come. The Holy Spirit bears witness in your heart and mind because we are the bride of Christ. And the message is come, Lord Jesus, come. Say that with me. Come. Mean it. Lord, come. That should be the cry of our hearts, folks. Come. It's what we long for. Hopefully more now as we've done this study of the book of Revelation than when we started. It's what we long for. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. That's talking about, I think, the unsaved who hear the message of the gospel. The Holy Spirit speaks into their hearts and they say, come. Not come again, Lord Jesus, but rather, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me. Make me one of yours. Prepare me for this eternity with you in heaven. 
And then this. And let the one who's thirsty. It doesn't say let the one who's thirsty say come. It says let the one who's thirsty come. Folks, there's no strings to this. If your heart longs, whether it's as a person who doesn't know Christ or a person who's known Christ for 40 years. If your heart says, I want more, I need more. The invitation is wide open to us every day to come. To experience more of his goodness and more of his grace and more of his life. And then there's two verses in this that just make me go, that's Greek for, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. The very first time I can remember reading James chapter 3 verse number 1 that says, let not many of you become teachers because knowing as a teacher you'll incur a stricter judgment. I'm a firstborn type A personality. That one about put me under because I knew God had called me to do what I'm doing. If you think that one freaked me out, how do you think this makes me feel? (laughs) Sobering to say the least. But I can stand in front of you with a perfectly clear conscience saying this. Folks have asked me, how many hours have you put in on this? And my answer is twofold. A lot. And not enough, I'm, I'm sure. I take those two verses more seriously than maybe you'll ever know. And I've, I've done the best I know to do to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in this series. And hopefully, hopefully you'll agree with this, that when I haven't known, I've said so. And when there are several opinions, I've tried to say, I, here's some other opinions. I, I, this is my best guess. I hope I've done that. I think I have. Verses 18 and 19 are aimed primarily at preachers and teachers and apostles, prophets, and evangelists, you know, church ministry leaders. That's my job. That's my responsibility. But you know what? You have a job and responsibility in this too. And yours is to heed what this book says. I have a great concern for the body of Christ in general. Not so much our church because I think we work hard at heeding what this book says. But the greater body of Christ, I I see spots where that's not happening. People, some people flat out reject the truth and want to make it say what it doesn't say. But I think the bigger concern I have is people who are just drifting away from the truth because of lack of attention given to the word of God. These words from Hebrews chapter two sound an alarm in my spirit. And I think it's a part of the spirit of the age in which some of the church finds itself today. It's Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse number 1. Chapter 1, is, is a, it speaks of Jesus and the new covenant and how we're saved by faith, not by the law. So when it says, for this reason, because of all those things in chapter 1, for this reason we must, excuse me, yeah, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that, what we, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. It's not just that people reject the word of God, it's that they neglect it. And neglecting the word of God can lead you to a really bad place. Sadly, there are so many people today who say, I I know I should read the Bible. I should study. I don't have time. I'm too busy. That's how neglect happens, folks. And that's a tough spot. That's why families are so important in our church and family ministry is so important. Not that we as leaders are going to do all the ministry for your families, but that we're trying to help prepare you to be the leaders in your families that you're supposed to be. Because we don't want anybody neglecting the word of God and drifting off away from what it says. Mike Napa, one of our members, um, is a writer. I'm not sure if this is Mike's latest book, but it's a book he wrote called The Jesus Survey. The subtitle is What Christian Teens Really Believe and Why. And in this book, Mike surveyed 
877 teenagers. First question he asked, or one of the first was, are you a Christian? 96% of them said yes. And then he asked them questions about the Bible. Do you think it's true? Do you really think it's God's word? Do you pray? Uh, Jesus, was he really crucified? Was he really resurrected? Is he really God? Is he truly the only way? Uh, and the second coming and on and on and on. It's a fascinating book and I'm not going to tip Mike's hand in this. It's well worth reading. It's startling what teenagers who say they're Christians believe about the Bible. And I think some of it is because there's this enormous neglect of the word of God. That's why I'm so proud of Pastor Brian and Pastor Cheryl. We work hard not to neglect God's word. Now, you've got to decide whether you believe it or not and whether you're going to obey it or not. But from our end, I don't ever want to be a part of a church that neglects the word. It's a dangerous place. A dangerous place. I was thinking earlier this morning, you can't heed what you don't read. You can't heed what you don't read. A cop pulls you over and you say, officer, I didn't even see the stop sign. You think he's going to pat you on the head and say, oh, okay. You've got to be able to see the signs, folks. You can't heed what you don't read. So be in the word. That's not a legalistic statement. That's a wisdom statement. All right, let's wrap this up quickly. Speaking of quickly, verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And our response is, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Church, have you ever noticed the more that you start talking about Jesus coming again, the more crazy the world thinks you are? Now, they may already think you're crazy, but you start talking about, I really believe Jesus is coming again. And so many people out there look at you like you have three heads. You really believe that stuff? That shouldn't surprise you. It's in the book. Second Peter chapter three says this, this was written like a hundred years after Jesus left the planet at most. It says there knowing, excuse me, know this first of all. So that means it's important in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since the church fathers died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You see, the world thinks you're nuts if you expect Jesus to literally come again. And yet here's the great irony. Verse number nine says, the Lord's not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know why Jesus is delaying? So they come to faith in him. And so they are mocking the very one who's holding off his return so they have a chance to know him. Wow. But for us, we can't worry about all that. Here's what our focus needs to be. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since you look for his return, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Folks, we need to keep the main thing the main thing and not get distracted or sidetracked. And folks, here is the main thing. Here's the main point of this message since September, as we've been going through this book, our motto for this whole series has been four statements. First of all, life is hard. Secondly, God is good. Third, don't quit because we win. We have to burn that into our hearts and minds. I've got a great story from a book by Randy Alcorn. The book is just entitled Heaven. And I want to read this short little story for you. In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both directions. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats that accompanied her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside of her, told her she was close, that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, Florence stopped swimming and was pulled out. 
It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. There's some of you here today that feel like all you can see is the fog because your focus is on how hard life is. And you may sit there and look at that little four-part thing and go, yeah, that's nice, Kent, but you don't understand. You don't know how hard my life is. I would say to you, that's probably true. But I would also say, you don't know how hard some parts of my life are. I'm not quitting. And neither should you. Church, we are so close to the shore. Sometimes I think we have no idea how close to the shore we are. How quickly it is that the Lord Jesus is coming again. Don't quit. The book ends with these simple yet profound words. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. I was thinking this morning, the third verse to amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We're close, folks. He's coming soon. So here's how I want to finish today. I want us to get in little groups and take just a couple of minutes to pray together, okay? Now, you're going to spend eternity with these people. They may very well have the mansion right next to yours. So you might as well get to know them now, okay? I want you to pray prayers of thanksgiving, thanking God for his sovereignty, for his goodness, even in the midst of the chaos and the calamity and the confusion and how could people be so blind, Thank God for his sovereignty and his goodness and his grace that has brought you safe thus far and declare to him, you believe that grace will lead you home. We're close to the shore, folks. Pray for those that you love and care about that are still lost, that still need to come to Jesus. Commit yourself to persevere. You may be in a fog, but you're closer to the shoreline than you may think you are. So before we get into groups, I just, I want to say this to you. This whole book is a promise to overcomers. Do you know what it takes to overcome? To overcome, you have to undergo. To overcome, you have to undergo certain things, certain trials, certain difficulties. But you will win because Jesus wins.